this to do one thing. Everybody sit down and accept that. I just want you to be able to come. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Give thanks to God. Surely the Lord is good. And we can say that whether we're still in the middle of a trial, still in a wheelchair, let's say, or still in the midst of a painful ordeal, we can say, praise the Lord, uh, when he chooses to show us mercy and grace and to offer us reasons to uh, uh, see the greatness of his power and his healing hand. Uh, trusting the Lord is really what it's all about in the Christian life. Trust and obey. That's really the what it means to follow Christ. Let's uh, bow together in prayer today. Uh, this is a sermon I'm still feeling quite uh, in need of God's grace in terms of how we look at this text, and so I'd like to uh, make sure the Holy Spirit communicates what He wants us to learn through this portion of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, have a great time of singing here today. Our hearts are filled indeed with joy. We rejoice, Lord, in you to, see of your, to sing of your faithfulness and your goodness, Lord, is good for us. It is good for us to give praise to you. Lord, it's what we're designed to do, and when we're not praising you, Lord, we know that that's not in keeping with our purpose and with what is real and what you're, what you're deserving of. So, Lord, we do give you praise for our dear sister Becky's improvement. We thank you, Lord, for other answers to prayer we can't and won't take the time this morning to fully explore. We know, Lord, that there are many people who are not able to say that today, that they are not healed and they're not improved. They find themselves in diff more difficult situations. Yet, Lord, we thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you that you do not fail. We thank you that you, your promises stand true no matter how we feel or what's happening in the world. So, Father, again, as we now take time to look into your word, we desire, Lord, to not uh, dull the edges of this portion of your word. May it pierce us, Lord, just as it did, I believe, the original hearers. And we pray that you might help us, Father, to see the glorious truths that are found in this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ displayed unmatched wisdom, and to borrow a phrase from perhaps someone as astute as Mitch Lozak, he also had much chutzpah to interact the way he did with some of his enemies during the last week before his death. We're coming to a text in Matthew 21 this morning that is found in a context of Jesus has just entered Jerusalem with thousands and thousands of other pilgrims who have come from all over, and they've gathered for the feast of the Passover, and Jesus has just completed a day or two ago the expelling from the temple complex those who were, who were changing the money, and thereby, in so doing, he exposed a spiritual and financial corruption particularly evident in those who had responsibility and oversight of this whole endeavor of the temple complex. And needless to say that when he did that, the individuals who were responsible and who had been benefiting from this endeavor and who were in many ways embellishing themselves through this 
a large worship complex from charging all these excessive fees to all of the other things that they were doing, even encouraging widows to give their last two mites and somehow suggesting that this was appropriate for them to give entirely everything they ever had. He was ripped. They were clearly doing things that were taking advantage of the poor, the desperate. And so here's Jesus facing these individuals, coming to them, and they clearly are not appreciative of what he's just done. They have now been corrected in public, and no doubt they have with them a contingency of the high priests and the scribes and a number of the other highfalutin people in the temple and who are known to be leaders in the Jewish, uh, among the Jewish people there, the religious leaders. And they're coming for the one purpose. They're coming to try to provoke Jesus into saying something, into doing something else that they could find that would be incriminating so that they can use that as grounds to have him arrested, have him removed from the situation, and eventually destroy him. So here's Jesus now offering comments to these individuals. He is engaging them in a time of serious conversation, in circumstances that required, it seems to me, great courage, as he knows their intention, and he knows that this courageous love that he has in his heart, he's willing to confront his enemies. He is willing to speak the truth with them and does so with great compassion for their souls. And if you don't see anything in this text, you've got to see that. You've got to see that Jesus is speaking with a sense of deep burden and concern for these who have, indeed, they're out to destroy him. And when these religious leaders refused to answer Jesus' early question, he then now is going to, he proceeded to move into the time of teaching and includes three parables. We're only going to look at the first this morning But these parables he hoped would bring them into awareness so that they would begin to understand their own moral culpability and they would understand the implications of how they've rejected his ministry and his teaching. And I want us to consider now this first parable found in verses 28 to 32 of Matthew 21. And let's look at it carefully and read it this morning if you follow along. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second son, and he said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. And yet... He afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, that is, these Jewish leaders who were gathered there, they said, the latter. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the day of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. I wish I could somehow shock you the same way that those words would have shocked the audience that Jesus spoke them to. I guess the only thing I've thought of is 
a movie I saw years ago, a very short film. It was called Bambi Meets Godzilla. <laughs> One of these films they show at youth, youth uh, pastors when they get together, youth directors and things, and so uh, they show this little film. It has a nice little deer sitting there, and it's an animated f- film, and nice music, and little butterflies, and the deer's just eating the grass. And then all of a sudden, after about 15 seconds of this nice, quiet thing, here comes this massive foot that just stamps all over, just stomps on this deer. You can't even see the deer anymore. And that's the end of the film. It, it almost it comes at you with such, such quickness. And I feel like this is what Jesus did in this parable. It's a very short parable. It's not much here to really work with. But it has such a powerful uh, kicker at the end. And, uh, and I've, so I've looked at the text. I want us to consider this from two perspectives. From, first of all, I want to look at the parable and think of it as a parable that is a convicting parable. It, it has a sense in which it's confronting these people that need to be confronted. And there's a sense in which that element of it needs to be something that we take and consider as well. But it also has, and we must not move beyond the text until we've also noticed the second part of this, and I would like to consider it from the compassionate side as a, as a parable. It has a, a comforting side to it that I'd like us to consider as well. So regarding the convicting aspect of this parable, let's think about the audience to whom it's spoken for a moment. These religious leaders that Jesus sought to teach this first parable enjoyed a reputation among their fellow Jews as men who had tremendous uh, spiritual authority and moral authority and superiority. These men took great pride in their high level of devotion that they made very clear to everybody around them, everybody who knew them, had seen them display very uh, fastidious and earnestness in their endeavor to follow and keep the traditions, to keep the rituals, to keep the rules, to keep the regulations that were pertaining to life there in the temple. These were the men, and everybody knew it, these were the men who prayed. And they would pray often and loudly in public. These were the men who would, indeed, they would tithe. They would give money generously. And these were the men who fasted, and they let everybody know when they were fasting, and they would wear evidences upon their face, making it very clear that they were fasting on that particular day. They were men who were well taught. They knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so well and so carefully they had been studying them all their lives. They had sat they, they enjoyed prominent seats within the temple complex. And they invested so much of their efforts to try to maintain this sense of separateness, a, a sense in which they would not uh, somehow become unclean from people who did not observe all the rules and regulations of the temple, and they did not want to enter into this kind of ritual impurity. And so they would make a point to never come in contact with people who would cause them to therefore become people who would somehow be tarnished by hanging out with people who are not following all the rules and regulations associated with their worship. And they insisted that they were indeed some of the most committed followers in all the nation of Israel. And they prized, they, were, they highly prized their spiritual ancestry. They knew that their line went all the way back to Abraham, and that kind of confidence in their background and their association with Abraham gave them a sense of being secure spiritually, and also they were very much uh, prized the fact that they had accomplished so many things religiously. Oh, they had a long list of religious and spiritual accomplishments. And out of this huge crowd of worshipers in this temple complex, they 
enjoyed the highest sense of confidence that they would find full acceptance before God. They were confident as they stood before God. But you'll notice the parable that Jesus told <laughs> indicates that there are two sons who are told to go work into a, the father's vineyard. And this parable clearly was aimed directly at these spiritual leaders. And Jesus, in telling them the parable, wanted them to understand that things are not as they may seem to them at this moment. He wanted them to understand that this is one of the last opportunities that he's now going to take to try to persuade them, for them to know before it was too late that their behavior was resembling the kind of behavior of the first son of the parable. Here they have enthusiastically promised their loyalty and their devotion to God. Oh, would they have affirmed that? Oh, yes, I have made many of my commitments to God, and I'll give you many, many, many examples of how I've done so. They were very confident of their loyalty and devotion to God. But the problem is that they never got around to doing what God really wanted them to be doing and what he really wanted to see happen in their hearts. And what had God wanted them to be involved in? What was God really commanding them to do when they had neglected to do the duty and responsibility that he had given to them? You need to back up in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. Turn back there with you, would. Matthew chapter 3. It takes us back to the ministry of John the Baptist. And when John first came on the scene as a prophet who is speaking after three or four hundred years of silence. There have been no prophets being sent from God. Here he comes on the scene in verse 2. He makes this absolute statement for all those who are gathered here and preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is what God is calling all of, his, all of those people to do. And if you'll skip down, you'll notice in verse 7, it then mentions these Pharisees and Sadducees. It mentions them and a number of other people who are gathered there. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Now, why is he calling them a viper? Because they look innocent. They look harmless. But inside of them is a deadly venom and all sorts of impurity and spiritual corruption. And he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And here's his admonition to them, specifically as spiritual leaders. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Here was John. He was out there preaching in the wilderness, inviting people who were Gentiles wanting to become proselytes, to become converts, He's saying, you go through the process of initiation of baptism, you go through that process and announce that you're repenting and turning from your sins, and he turns to the spiritual leaders and says, you need to do the same thing. Repent. Of course, that kind of message is quite radical for them because repentance essentially involves our minds that we understand and acknowledge and we have specific knowledge of sin in our lives, and that with that knowledge, the more we are aware of it, the more we are ponder it, the more that we've reflected on it, we realize that, that, that we begin to react now to it differently than we used to in the past, and now our feelings 
in terms of how he thought about that, that sin and offense against God brings us great pain and brings us a sense of grief and remorse over what we've done. And that essentially then turns into, for true repentance, it turns into the, affecting our will, and we then have a change of mind, a change of desires, and we therefore then have awakening in us a need for moral cleansing, and we desire to behave and make different choices and turn away from the sin we used to delight in. And these spiritual leaders, I think at one time, said, oh yes, we're with you on all that. But I don't think they ever really meant it because he says they were never any giving any fruit in keeping with that repentance. Never did we see in them, Jesus is pointing out, the kind of humility that would bring them down to the sense of which they realize they are not way up here. They are just like everybody else in need of grace and forgiveness. Never did they see in their lives a sorrow over sin, a kind of desperate desire for mercy. It never seemed to characterize their response and dealings with God. They never came to the point where they were uh, uh, somehow amazed and blown away by the unmerited favor that God shows them in sending His Son, Jesus, the Messiah, to bear their sins and the penalty of their sins for them. They must have initially gone along with the crowd, but it became clear over time that they became more concerned about other people who were not meeting up to the standards that they had been meeting up to, and they became highly critical of them and totally oblivious to the fact that they had never had a heart change. They had never really felt the sense of, of remorse over their sin. They had never really became repentant and saw the fruit of that in their lives. And so they began to make it their business to try to be better than everybody else and find fault with those around them. They confidently believed the fact that because they were descendants of Abraham, that made them spiritually secure. You see, people who are religious moralists have no problem making promises and professions. It is possible for people to sit in churches and to respond to an invitation, to raise their hand, to walk an aisle, to do different responses at some point in their life. It's possible for them to do that and to do it for motives that perhaps were maybe not even clear to them at the time, and yet to never really live out the evidence of a true change of heart and true repentance. And there have been many people I've talked to over the years who've said, oh yes, when I was a certain age in life, years and years and years ago, I prayed this prayer. And yet they have no interest in spiritual things. They have no sense of concern or burden about how their lives are not being lived for the glory of God, and their hearts indeed seem to be unconcerned about any kind of fruit of repentance evident in their lives. And so it's possible to make many professions, it's possible to make many promises, and yet not follow through those things and to live in conformity to God's will. And religious moralists tend to be proud of their good deeds. They like to see themselves as, well, I, you know, I did do this. And I am doing that, and I've done this in my life before. And they like to do maximizing of that, and then they minimize the evil deeds. They minimize their failure to do the things, realizing that they have offended God in many ways. They highly value their moral record, and this leads often to an attitude of self-righteousness. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, points out that religious moralists they use their moral record to put God and to put other people 
in debt to them in order to control them and to get what they want. And so their spiritual problem is radical insecurity because they base their self-image on their achievements. They base their self-image on their performance. And so they must endlessly prop up their sense of righteousness and by putting other people down and finding fault with other people. And I find it interesting that Jesus taught a number of parables aimed directly at people who struggle with this issue. If you think of the parable of Luke chapter 15, there are three parables there. The third parable is oftentimes called the parable of the prodigal son. That's a misnomer. It's not a good title for that parable. Because the parable is not just about a prodigal son who runs away and lives the wild life and then repents, feels remorse, comes home, and begs the father to take him in as a slave. The whole point of the parable is to respond to the objection on the part of religious moralists like the Pharisees and people who were the self-righteous crowd, and they're complaining that Jesus is showing mercy, he's showing grace to people who are living a wild lifestyle, who have, who have lived a profligate life. And So you find that in the parable, it's the older brother who objected to the grace and forgiveness extended to the rebellious immoral brother of his, that's where he is now saying, these are the people who they have no joy in seeing people receiving forgiveness, coming to faith, and understanding what it is to be cleansed and forgiven by the grace of God. And here Jesus portrays the older brother as the one who lacks joy, he lacks any kind of love for the Father, he's just serving him and loyally doing what he needs to do out of duty, never really enjoying what it means to work for the Father. And so here's Jesus telling another parable in Luke 18, which we, uh, <clears throat> there's a parable in Luke 18 about a Pharisee who was a religious uh, legalist, and he's, he's introduced in this way. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. 18, verse 9, Luke. Quite interesting how Jesus sets this up to explain the point of the parable. He's talking about a Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous, verse 9, and viewed others with contempt. That speaks a lot right there, doesn't it? He is, views himself as being righteous, but looks at other people, and boy, he just, has a, he just looks down his long nose at them. And he goes to the temple to pray, and knows how Jesus depicted this prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood up and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, pointing right to the guy. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. I do this. I do that. I am doing all these good things. But notice Jesus' comment at the end of the parable, another zinger, another, another statement that just, boom, just comes right in there making a tremendous effect. Verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself, like this Pharisee had been doing, everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It was the tax collector who was crying out to mercy from God, beating on his breast, acknowledging he doesn't deserve anything, crying out for mercy. He's the one who's going to receive what? He's going to be lifted up. In the parable of Matthew 21, Jesus is reminding those leaders of the temple 
that they had indeed heard Jesus, uh, sorry, they had heard John the Baptist introduce Jesus. They had heard of Jesus, the righteous one. And they had refused to believe the message about his coming, about the fact that there was going to be a judgment and the need to repent. And during those previous three years, they had seen again and again many people hearing that message who had not lived in the constraints of all of the regulations and rules of the temple worship, and they had seen these sinners coming to Jesus, turning from their sins, repenting, and being forgiven, and enjoying the kind of fellowship with Jesus. And they had watched all of that, and they'd said, what in the world? This doesn't make any sense. This is absolutely ridiculous. They couldn't understand how God could do, how Jesus could do such a thing and claim to be from God. They refused to see they had a similar need and they denied that they had failed to do the will of God, and they've hardened their hearts, and they've focused all their energies now on finding fault with other people. People who are not keeping the standards, the people who are out of line, the people who are clearly never going to live up to the standards of what they should be doing. And one of the things that keeps people out of the kingdom of God, one of the greatest things that keeps people out of the kingdom of God is not the extent or the depth of their sin, or their corrupt lifestyle. It is an unwillingness to be remorseful over your sins and to sense your own need, your desperate need for grace and for cleansing. Here is Jesus repeatedly confronting the dangers of spiritual pride. And that's what was in the lives of these men. Spiritual pride rooted in this, this sense of desire to do all of this personal performance. And therefore, they've put such an emphasis on what they've done, they've become blind. They can't see it anymore. And they're ignoring their own sins, they're ignoring their own failings, they're ignoring their own selfishness, their arrogance, their greed, all their broken promises, all these things they've promised to God, they've never followed through on them. In order to maintain this public image of spirituality, they've avoided any kind of admitting their fault or anything in their lives that would not meet the standard of acceptance before God. And I've thought to myself, isn't that true of my life sometimes? How easy it is to never want to admit your sins to anybody else. Who wants to confess your faults to somebody else and say, well, this is how my heart went, was, uh, how my wicked thoughts and my heart's desires went this week. How many times in our growth groups do we hear an honest confession of sin among ourselves as we acknowledge, you know, this is what I struggle with this week. My tongue got the best of me, or I really had a rough time in this uh, area of my life where I was uh, eating far more than I should have when I was stressed, and I wasn't praying, and, and this is where I've sort of been out of shape with this person. I refuse to uh, extend them forgiveness, and I'm really angry about this. And when was the last time that we ourselves acknowledged that these are, we are people who struggle with sin? Churches should be places where people can talk and acknowledge freely that we struggle with sin. Rather than giving the impression that we all have our act together, we are the people who clearly are called to say, we are the ones who need God's grace, we need mercy, because we realize we're still very much in need of radical change and transformation. And Jesus looks and he sees these blind leaders of the blind. They're blind in terms of they don't have any sense of need for a Savior. They're blind to their own, they, 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 they're blind to the glory of the cross. 
They were glad to see Christ die on that cross. They were blind to, to the fact that he was the one coming to help them and rescue them. They wanted nothing of it. And when I've read through this text, I've thought to myself, God have mercy upon us. If we are people who are around spiritual things and our hearts become full of pride and we're not able to humble ourselves, we're not able to acknowledge our sins before others, if we're not confessing our sins to others that we might be healed, then maybe that kind of heart attitude is creeping up within us. And we need to be reminded that we can many times find ourselves confronted with spiritual pride that is the real opposite of what God desires in his children. It is a confrontational parable. There's no question about it. And he has really confronted them. But I've, I've meditated on this text, my friend. There is a wonderful aspect here that I really want us to focus on. It's a comforting parable. Because here is Jesus having talked about the first son, the son who said, oh yes, I'm going to pretend to be good and I'm going to say all the right things, make all the promises, but invariably I will fail to follow through on those. My heart's really not into it. I'm not, I'm not sincere. I'm a hypocrite. There's another kind of person in this world. There's two sets of people, Jesus said, basically in the human race. There are people who, who say they're going to do something and they don't follow through. And then there's people who just defy the, their master and say, no way, refuse to obey God. And they live a lifestyle that says, I'm going to do my own thing. And nobody makes the rules for me. I make my own rules. The latter refuse to conform to any kind of moral expectations. They see no need to pretend. <laughs> They're just out there. They're not pretending about anything. They're just living their life unconcerned about anybody who may uh, find fault with what they do or not do. They are relativists who follow their own standards of right and wrong, and their number one priority is to do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And they have, most likely, little or no involvement in any kind of religious community. They're out there. But as I've thought about this text and thought about this ministry of Jesus, I find it fascinating that Jesus did not remain separate from people like that. Jesus did not keep his distance from the quote-unquote sinners. He did not avoid them like the religious moralists. Frequently in the Gospels we find Jesus sharing a meal with those who avoided the temple who never came into the temple complex and could not have gotten into the temple complex. And one of the accusations in Matthew 11, verse 19, leveled by Jesus' opponents and the religious leaders, was that what? He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was no title of great honor. They were trying to destroy him with that association. See, Jesus did not exclude or dismiss those who were outwardly or overtly breaking the standards of God. He saw them through the eyes of compassion and concern. And I wonder how many of us, when we see such brokenness in our world, we see such people who are throwing all restraints aside, people whose lives are lived in ways that are just breaking every one of the many commands that we know God's Word teaches us, and they're doing it in ways in which they have no no hesitation, no qualms, no remorse. To what extent do we see our hearts drawn toward people like that and have a desire to minister to them, to try to help them in their brokenness, 
and in the utter destruction of their lives morally and in many other ways. I don't know how many of you read recently, but in the last month or two, a man by the name of David Wilkerson died. That name may not mean much to you, but uh, David Wilkerson was uh, killed in an automobile accident here. Uh, He was raised in Pennsylvania, born and raised there, and in the early 60s, he read in the newspaper about gang violence in New York City. And in reading about this violence in the city, he's not from the city, he was, a, he, was not, he was out there in Pennsylvania and far, far away from the urban life. But he was so grieved by what he was hearing, people getting killed, uh, the kind of ongoing violence among these gangs, that he felt led by God to move to New York City. It was through his in the efforts to minister to these people in this particular setting of so much uh, uh, violence and hatred and animosity between different groups at that time that he eventually realized that many of them also were involved in the drug, uh, drug um, many of them were drug addicts, many of them had alcohol issues, and he then was f- helpful in founding the ministry called Teen Challenge in seeking to bring hope and healing and, and help for people whose lives were truly indeed destroying, becoming destroyed right before their very eyes. It was his desire to reach those who were involved in gangs, those who become people who were the, the faraway people we're trying to avoid. His heart was drawn toward them. And now all that, of course, was summarized in a book and a movie when I was growing up was a big deal called The Cross and the Switchblade. He was the person whose heart was moved in that direction. And as I thought about that, I thought to myself, isn't it interesting that Jesus says the kingdom is the kingdom that moves in the direction toward people who are the outsiders, the people who are the ones who have said, no, I'm not going to do this thing. And I'm not even going to attempt to even try to follow all your little rules and and religious expectations. And Jesus, in the Gospels, crosses over the social, cultural, religious, and racial boundaries to minister to people who are the sexual outcasts, to the criminals, to the people who were the objects of derision and hatred and prejudice. It's shocking, and we don't see that oftentimes as we read the Gospels. But that's what he's doing. And for him to make this statement in this text, speaking to the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, saying to them, do you realize that the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to make it in the kingdom before you do? was shocking. It was the most stunning statement you could make. And I don't know how we can fully grasp it ourselves. I don't know how to, to recreate the kind of stunning effect that it must have had. But here's my point I want to make here. Jesus welcomes sinners. It is those who admit they are sinners, who don't try to put on some kind of front. It is the people who have indeed rebelled and gone their own way and who don't uh, come across as if they're better than anybody else. It is the people who come acknowledging that they have uh, uh, sinned in such grievous ways that they come and repent of their sin, they come and follow Christ, they know forgiveness, they can know restoration and true healing. I pray we'd never lose sight of that moving scene that we read about in Luke chapter 7. And I don't know if you read that, but you began to sense how utterly pitiful it was for Jesus to be invited into this man's home 
And in that invitation, he was treated so rudely by this Pharisee, by this uh, religious moralist, this person who, who, again, was such a rule keeper. He invites Jesus in his home, and he doesn't even give him the customary handshake, or in that culture, a kiss on the cheek, probably both cheeks, as they do now in the Middle East. He doesn't give him any kind of oil on his head, which is a typical kind of thing to almost say, why don't you wash up before, uh, before we eat, or any kind of water to, to wash his feet. Nothing was afforded to him, which was the normal, the minimal you'd offer to anybody in your home. And as the meal is served, which was often done in a context where other people could gather around and sort of watch the meal, because it's done in a courtyard, probably a very well-to-do home, here comes this immoral woman anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, weeping, using her tears to wipe his feet, acknowledging her desire to repent of her sin, just sensing how utterly unworthy she was to be in his presence. And Jesus perceived this woman's heart of faith. He announced that her sins, although many, were fully forgiven. And her love for Christ is profound because she knew that her sins had been forgiven. Her great and grievous sins had been forgiven. All the shame that she'd been carried around. And here's Jesus lifting her up, cleansing her, elevating her from her sense of shame, living in the shadows. What a contrast to Simon. Simon's criticizing Jesus, finding fault with him, viewing this kind of expression of devotion to Jesus as, a, as just ridiculous, and what a waste, and let's get this out of here. Do you know what kind of woman's doing all this? All they can do is find what's fault, faulty with the person. These, this guy, Simon, was clueless about grace. But as I read this parable in Matthew 21, I find great comfort in knowing there's grace. Grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is given to those who are the every rebel at some point has sinned and gone their own way, turns from that sin and transfers their trust to Jesus Christ. That those, whoever they are, wherever they've come from, whatever their background is, whatever they have committed, that they can know full forgiveness. Enjoying the blessing of being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. May I remind you that the person who wrote this book, who wrote the gospel, the human author, who was he? Matthew, the tax collector. The one who had received that kind of forgiveness. The one whose life had been radically changed. The one who was taken from being the most hated person, was welcomed into the, the club of membership, welcomed into the inner core, welcomed into being a follower of Jesus Christ, on the same basis as everybody else, on the basis of grace and mercy that he received. And Matthew knew that if the, if the church is to be vibrant, if the church is to be effective in its transference of the message of grace, it needs to be communicated clearly. Grace is equally appropriate for those who are the sinners, quote-unquote, as those who have been raised with good backgrounds and upright bringing. call to forsake our sin and the call to follow Jesus Christ goes out to everyone. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is grace in the gospel. It could go to the homosexual, to the drug dealer, to the criminal, to the wife beater, to the unwed mother, to the young man who who is the father of the unwed uh, mother and who encourages that woman to get an abortion and just throws her to the curb when she says, I'm pregnant. 
to porn stars, and to those who are addicted to pornography, to those who are abortionists, terrorists, gang members, prodigal sons and prodigal daughters, gamblers, pimps, you name it. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, there is grace in Jesus Christ. And they are in no different category than you and me, my friends, and they need to know this truth. And I ask myself, how many people do I interact with who have those kinds of needs, who are living that kind of life? They need to know, my friend, and they need people to come and help live the gospel before them, not look down their nose at them and not act as if we're better than them, but to say, Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ welcomes sinners. And I'm one of them, and you are too, brother. Let's ask for mercy and celebrate grace. Let's pray. Father, as I've thought about this text, I know that the response of those who heard it on that occasion was to completely reject it and deny it and to destroy the messenger who brought it. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to not easily dismiss this message. Help us again to be warned about our own spiritual pride. Help us, Father, to be aware that we are vulnerable, especially if we are people who are trying to endeavor to follow some sort of moral, upright standards, that we easily can get slipped into the mode of looking at other people's faults and finding other people to not beat up to standards and becoming hypocritical and losing out on our own need to constantly celebrate grace and to cry out for mercy and to be humble before you. Lord, we pray that you'd keep us from becoming people who withdraw from people who live much differently than us. For those who are the people who are the rebels, those who break all the rules, those who live outside the constraints of being within the hearing of preaching and gathering in a church, Lord, help us, we pray, to show compassion like you did, Lord Jesus. Help us to see them through your eyes. Help us to realize that they are the ones who don't come with any kind of pretensions, that often when the Spirit of God convicts them of their sin, they acknowledge they are in desperate need of a Savior, and they can enter in the kingdom on the same basis as any of us, on the basis of grace through faith. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a burden for those who are indeed the lost, for those who are indeed known to be rebellious. We pray, Father, that you might continually give us a greater desire to go toward them, to have a heart that's moved to try to help bring words of hope, words of truth, and to do so with the compassion and grace of Jesus Christ operating in us. Some of us, Lord, have family members that we need to love like this. Some of us have neighbors and co-workers, people we deal with at school. Father, we pray that we might be your ambassadors, that we might be your loving agents, and that we might be a people who say, I'm in need of grace. You can find the same grace in Jesus Christ. Join me at the cross. Do this, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.
I couldn't help but think that the appropriate song to sing today is one about Jesus who he loves sinners, he rescues us from our sin, he is a great savior. Let's celebrate him and rejoice in the wonderful, glorious gospel that says, any who come, no matter who you are and what you've done, there is forgiveness in Christ and his blood for you. Let's stand.
now before we uh, have the benediction we remind you again next Sunday morning we start our 10 a.m. worship uh, pattern so please be sure to remember that at 10 a.m. we'll meet here and continue to celebrate God's grace and goodness now may the love of God our Father the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you now and forevermore amen